I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The FT. Hello and welcome back to FT Science. This week, we talk to the head of the world's biggest biomedical research agency about translating basic science into clinical benefits. The idea is to look at this development process the way an engineer would and to ask, are there steps involved in going from the identification of the molecular basis of a disease to an approved therapy that could be more optimal? We hear the sound of graphs. Now you will be able to hear some of the sounds that this new graph produces. And we find out what really happened during the recent outbreak of E. coli food poisoning in Germany. There are suggestions that the contamination may have originated in Egypt and transferred via bean sprout seeds. But research is ongoing and raises further questions about how much we know about the provenance of the food we eat. I'm Clive Cookson and you're listening to FT Science. My colleague Andrew Jack, FT Pharmaceuticals correspondent, is here with me. Since our last show two weeks ago, we've both been on transcontinental travels, and particularly Andrew, who has attended both the Pacific Health Summit in Seattle and the World Science Journalist Conference in Qatar. What were the highlights of the two events, Andrew? Well, Seattle, the Pacific Health Summit, was very much around the importance of vaccines in the developing world this year. Of course, an incredibly powerful and cost-effective tool for prevention of a growing number of diseases. And after a pretty extraordinary few weeks in which donors led by the UK provided a very large amount, another $4.6 billion to Gavi, which is a multilateral agency that funds the purchase of vaccines for the poor. There's a huge debate, including at Seattle, about how to make these vaccines as affordable as possible, as well as stimulating new innovation for new products. But above all, how to really get them not simply out of the factories and warehouses, but into the arms of children across the world's poor countries. So that was a big issue there about implementation as well as science. Otherwise, you've got this so-called innovation pile-up where there's been lots of exciting projects and new partnerships and approaches to innovation which are developing both drugs and vaccines, but they risk essentially rotting on the shelf. Did they come up with any conclusions apart from putting more and more money in? I think more than I've heard in the past, quite a serious effort, including by Gavi, this UN-backed organisation itself, to think more about how to work structurally with companies and suppliers, how to stimulate new sources of manufacturing, and also how to think about models that work, how you can really perhaps draw lessons from outside the health sector. And what about your trip to the other side of the world, to the World Science Journalist Conference in 
Doha, Qatar. This was a huge gathering of something like 600 journalists from around the world, many from the developing world, including Africa, an area where, of course, there's a growing discussion and debate, both about shifting the emphasis of science to really those people who need it most, whether it's in agricultural productivity, new seeds and so on, in health areas or other issues of economic development and how to apply science for that. Okay, well, I spent last week in Washington, D.C., at BIO, the world's biggest biotech meeting, and there I interviewed Francis Collins, who is one of the world's most accomplished geneticists. He led the U.S. Human Genome Project in the 1990s, and now he runs the National Institutes of Health, which spends more than $30 billion a year on biomedical research, which is far more than any other agency anywhere in the world. I asked him first whether he was disappointed that the outstanding science hadn't delivered more clinical benefits to patients over the past decade. I think actually the criticism of the disappointments coming out of the Genome Project are a little misplaced. Uh, If you look at what some of us who were thoughtful about this were saying in 2000, 2003, Uh, We're about where uh, I thought we would be. People, I think, perhaps were not realizing at that time just how long and slow is the process of going from molecular insight about a disease to actually having a clinically applicable prevention or diagnostic or therapeutic. Fifteen years is the usual timetable. Well, I'm frustrated about that. Uh, So moving aside from the Genome Project, my goal now is to try as the NIH director to see what we could do to speed up that process and to make it less failure-prone. What are your plans to translate basic fundamental scientific discovery into the clinic more quickly? The idea is to look at this development process the way an engineer would and to ask, are there steps involved in going from the identification of the molecular basis of a disease to an approved therapy that could be more optimal? Why do we do toxicology the way we do, would be a question. Why can't we identify more often compounds that have already been in humans and turn out to be beneficial for some new use instead of starting from scratch where it takes you so long? How do we deal with the thousands of new potential drug targets in terms of prioritizing them and pick the ones that are really going to work? There's a list of such engineering opportunities that no single company will take on, and academia has not been in a terribly good position to take on. But an organized effort by NIH to organize a new partnership between all those players uh, could potentially really change the landscape for the better. And you have a specific plan to do so, don't you? We aim to take a number of the capabilities that NIH already supports and bring them together in a way that will empower their innovative abilities, and this will be called the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. This is the first time in 20 years that NIH has started a new center on a scientific basis. The last one was for the Genome Project. So there are some similarities here where you can see opportunity, but you need a focused effort with a lot of technology and engineering attitude thrown in in order to to make it succeed. And a lot of collaboration with the private sector, both the pharmaceutical companies and the biotechs. Absolutely. And I think people should not think that somehow NIH is turning into a drug development company. We will not take on anything that's competitive or duplicative of what the private sector is going to do, but rather to try to assist the process to be more efficient. My conversations with pharmaceutical company executives and people in biotech is an opportunity for a synergism that hasn't been there before and could be highly productive.
They may have been, amongst other things, complaining about the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, slowing things down, being overly cautious. You are obviously not going to criticise another federal agency, but is there anything you can say to reassure them? Well, the FDA has a terribly tough job, and Peggy Hamburg, the commissioner, and I have worked hard to try to see are there things we could do together as sister agencies in this current scientifically exciting era to move the ball forward. So we are funding jointly an initiative in regulatory science. We have formed a leadership council jointly between FDA and NIH. I think we both see that this is a great moment uh, to try to build upon a lot of the new insights into having clinical trials uh, that are more flexible and providing the FDA with new kinds of scientific insights uh, to make it possible for them to do their job and end up with approval of compounds that are safe and effective. Lastly, let's invite you to look forward another 10 years, Um, not institutionally, but what can patients look forward to during this decade that might be coming along realistically? You know, it's very hard to make predictions when you're on an exponential curve, and I think we are right now in terms of progress and insights. But certainly in the next 10 years, uh, we should have developed a whole new menu of therapeutic interventions that will be much more targeted and more likely to be successful and less toxic than many of the therapies we have right now. And we should be able to individualize those by having learned a lot more about disease and recognizing that the subsets of diseases like cancer really matter in terms of the choices of therapy that you might want to offer diagnostically things will be better. We will all have our genomes sequenced probably, uh, most of us anyway, and that will allow a choice of the right drug at the right dose for the right person instead of one-size-fits-all medicine. So all of those things are going to be happening. They'll happen probably at a different pace for different diseases, and I will be probably among those most frustrated that it's not happening quickly enough, but you can certainly see the trajectory, and it is a very exciting one. Andrew, how do you see the interplay between government agencies like National Institutes of Health, Food and Drug Administration, and the private sector, the pharma and the drug companies, in pushing the science more quickly towards the clinic? I think there's a growing recognition it needs to happen. There's no doubt the NIH has provided a huge amount of money, as you say, which is the basis of a lot of the drugs that subsequently have been developed by the companies. So there's clearly a recognition of that partnership. And on the other hand, we've also seen, particularly in recent months, a a quite aggressive cutting of R&D budgets by drug companies, but the aim to boost productivity at the same time, precisely through more intimate partnerships with academia, with NIH institutes and other smaller biotech companies. So the sort of the universe is there, the need is there, where I think perhaps I have some doubts in terms of his, um, Francis Collins's comments, is how far we can really speed up and deliver. And I think perhaps he's still being a little bit over-optimistic. As, as we wrote in our special report last week in the FT, I think there's a, a gap between the exciting science, particularly the breakthroughs in terms of the genome, and the translation of that into drugs. I think for people involved, it's impossible not to overplay the promise. I mean, it was interesting that Francis while denying that he'd over-egged things 10 years ago at the end of the Human Genome Project, his look forward to the next 10 years actually was promising quite a lot, wasn't it? Yeah, and I think there are some big financial economic questions around this shift towards personalised medicine. It's still 
a pretty rare example where you've got a targeted diagnostic and a relevant drug to personalised medicine, where you have, particularly in some areas of cancer, the life gains are still pretty incremental. It can be a matter of a few weeks or months at best. And then if you are going to reduce the the number of patients in which any particular targeted drug works, you've also got to think of the balance, of course, with how much more a drug company would have to charge to offset its costs. So there's a lot of problems down the pipe. And at the same time, I think the NIH, while the desire for this greater translational research is great, one does feel, on the one hand, why hasn't it happened before? And two, do they at the moment have the right skill set to move much further down the product development, at least in terms of research, pipeline? Now for a total change of scene. This week, the Royal Society in London holds its annual show of the highlights of British science. There, I caught up with a group of young scientists from Bristol University who were demonstrating the sound of quantum graphs, showing what we can deduce about an object by listening to the sounds it makes. I spoke to Ram Band, head of maths and project leader. He told me how you can hear the shape of a graph. Well, first of all, I'll exhibit can allow the visitors to create their own graph, their own network, which you can think about as just a set of strings tied one to the other. So you can uh, tie the strings one to the other, pluck them, and then you hear sounds. We have a multi-touched surface, actually, that demonstrates this. We've just now built a new graph, and now you will be able to hear some of the sounds that this new graph that was made on this multimedia high-tech item Producers. Wonderful, eerie sounds, Ram, but this is not just educational, it's a great way of demonstrating what sounds are, but it's part of a serious research project in quantum physics, isn't it? Yes, this is part of a research that investigates what one can tell about the system just from hearing the sounds that this system makes. So, for example, we use quantum graphs as our demonstrating system. You hear the sounds, you don't see the graph, and then you need to guess what was the graph that generated these sounds. And what is the reason for doing that, the scientific reason for doing that? So there are actually two. One of them, which is very important to me, is scientific curiosity. There are very important, uh, interesting and challenging riddles and many open problems that we're trying to solve. Then the other one is actually that this part of research is also related to inverse problems. We have a certain measurements of an object and we're trying to figure out what is the shape of the object. You all know what happens in ultrasound, for example. When you see the measurements, you see the waves reflected from the tissues of the body, and you're trying to guess, or actually to see, to visualize, how the organs look like. There's a lot of really interesting stuff at the Royal Society Summer Exhibition, which I think would be particularly appealing to older school children. And the summer show is open till Sunday, July the 10th, For details, see the website royalsociety.org. 
Now, it's time for a contribution from the British Medical Journal. Over to Duncan Jarvis at the BMJ. Thanks, Clive. It's a medical detective story. What caused the outbreak of E. coli in Europe that has claimed the lives of 32 people and made over 3,000 ill? The outbreak of 0104 strain has caused the most deaths in Germany, and that's where the source was traced. A complex task that required careful examination of the infected people's eating habits. On that first Saturday, the 20th, we very early on had a pilot case control study and there we identified that it would have to be something associated with vegetables. Salad specifically. That was Gerard Krauss from the Robert Koch Institute who helped lead the investigation. The trouble with identifying salad is that it has many constituent parts. Dressings, condiments, herbs and vegetables all make it up. Also, a long incubation period meant people had to accurately remember what they ate a week ago. Plus, the media reporting of cucumbers biased recollections, altogether making a very difficult job. For all those reasons, we had to come up with a study design which would be more safe against recollection bias. And that was our recipe restaurant cohort study in which we did not rely very much on what the patients told us but we relied more on what the kitchen chief explained to us, how they prepare specific dishes. And the participants then only had to know what kind of meals they had ordered and if they have eaten it uh, completely or not. They even collected photos of nights out to double-check the data. That was a little extra item to kind of confirm and to recapture the recollection of the participants, but it was not the major methodological issue of the study. The breakthrough came when they identified bean sprouts as being the common element in all the cases. Now, they had to trace those bean sprouts back from the restaurants, through suppliers, to the farms where they originated, to identify the source of the infection. If it wouldn't have been for a more coincidental trace-forward approach of the Lower Saxony Agency, they traced sprouts forward from that farm, and then they were successful. If they hadn't done that, we would still not have been able to have a trace back. So that poses questions on how is food distribution organized and documented in Europe nowadays, and how is the technology available in the different agencies to quickly trace those issues back. I think that is a question that needs to be asked, and that is, to my astonishment, not being discussed very much in public. The traceback is continuing, and there are suggestions that the contamination may have originated in Egypt and transferred via bean sprout seeds. But research is ongoing and raises further questions about how much we, our food suppliers and our regulatory agencies know about the provenance of the food we eat. Back to you, Clyde. Thanks, Duncan, and thanks to the BMJ. What I think the incident shows, amongst other things, is the importance of good, old-fashioned, painstaking epidemiology, the detective work. I mean, new gene sequencing technology showed them within about three days exactly the genetic fingerprint of this microbe. It still took several weeks to track it down. And I think in a lot of instances it's almost impossible ultimately to trace back to the uh, the source, isn't it? That's one of the terribly difficult things with food infection outbreaks. The other thing, of course, that came out of this whole saga was the danger perhaps of speaking out too publicly too soon as we saw with the poor Spanish cucumber and uh, a huge impact on cucumber production actually around Europe. Yes, it was interesting. Not only did it have that terrible impact on cucumbers and vegetable growers around Europe, but it actually damaged the investigation as 
one of the people in that clip said, recollection bias. If you read in the papers that it was caused by cucumbers, you might remember eating cucumbers, and that hadn't occurred to me before. So it not only damaged the vegetable industry, it damaged the investigation itself. Anyway, I think that's all we have time for today. Next week, I'll be on holiday, and Andrew will be presenting another fascinating show. FT Science was produced by LJ Filatrani. I'm Clive Cookson. Goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellincat.com.